Friends, open your Bible with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, starting at verse 19, is where we'll begin our time this morning in this new series that we're called Life Giver. And as you're turning, there's a psychologist named Milton Royak who wrote a book called The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. And in the book, he describes his attempts to treat three patients at a psychiatric hospital in Ypsilanti, Michigan, who suffered from delusions of grandeur. Each one believed that he was unique among humankind. He had been called to save the world. Each one believed that he was the Messiah. And they displayed a full-blown case of grandiosity in its purest form. Royak found it difficult to break through to help each of the men individually to accept the truth about their identity, and so he decided to put the three of them together in a little experiment. He decided to create a little community of the three men to see if rubbing against people who also claimed to be the Messiah might make a dent in their delusion, a kind of messianic 12-step recovery program. And it led to some very interesting conversations, as you could imagine. One such conversation that he writes about is a man saying, I am the Messiah, the Son of God. I was sent here to save the earth. How do you know? Dr. Royak would ask. God told me, the patient would say. And just then, one of the other patients chimed in, I never told you any such thing. And on and on and on it went. And every once in a while he would write that they got a glimmer of reality. But it was never very deep and never lasted for very long. So deeply ingrained was the, messi- was the Messiah complex. You know, it seems like there's never a shortage of people who think that they're called to save the world. They're convinced that they are here for that very purpose. Sometimes it's overt, sometimes it's more subtle. When our actions move from doing the right thing or doing a good thing to a unique sense of self-importance in an unhealthy way, maybe we too suffer from the Messiah complex. And it's with that backdrop that we turn our attention to John chapter 1. In John 1, 19 through 34 you see John the Baptist enter the scene. And as John the Baptist enters the scene, immediately there are accusations and questions about whether or not this too is the next man in line with the Messiah complex. But through his words and through his actions, we see in this text that he points beyond himself. He points us to the true life giver, that has arrived. And so look with me, starting at John chapter 1, verse 19, it says this. It says, And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. 
What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen And have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John the Baptist enters the scene, a rather unsavory character, coming from the wilderness. And he comes with a specific message to the people in Israel. And as his ministry continues to grow and continues to expand, more people follow him. And he's holding public baptisms in the river. And more people hear the message, and more people are baptized, and then more come, and then more are baptized. And so the Jewish leaders of the day, seeing something is happening, send out a couple of representatives to inquire, or maybe even to accuse. And they come with two basic questions. Who are you, and why are you baptizing people? And here are his answers. John immediately, upon the first question, who are, who are you, knowing their concerns, says right out of the gate, I am not the Christ. <laughs> I'm not the one with the Messiah complex that you think I could be. Well, who are you then? They say, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? To which he answers, No. But then he does answer positively in a way that most surely would take them aback. He says in verse 23, a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Now if you know the book of Isaiah, you know in chapters 40 through 55 of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, which was written hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus or John the Baptist, that chapters 40 through 55 particularly focus on prophecy regarding the coming of Jesus and the circumstances around that time in history. And so for John the Baptist to look at them directly and say, who are you? I'm not that guy. Nope, I'm not that guy. But this is the guy that I am. I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Just as Isaiah had said. John applies 
prophecy to himself. Which is significant in a variety of ways. But one of the most significant pieces of it is the phrase itself, make straight the way of the Lord. That term Lord there that may be capitalized in your Bible is not just the term for a general deity. It's not just the term to say there is some kind of God coming your way. This is the covenant name of God. Make way the straight, make straight the path of Yahweh. The name that the Jewish people revered the covenant that gave them promise and hope and a future, the God who formed them and bound them together and through all of the ups and downs of history had continued to deliver them in the midst of their turmoil or their rebellion. The pronouncement is this. Prepare. God is coming among you. Why did he need them to prepare? Well, chapter 1, verse 10, talking about the coming of Jesus. Verse 9, it says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. John, in this very conversation, in verse 26, talks about his baptism. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. John comes onto the scene with his teaching and with his baptism for the simple purpose of preparing them to receive the coming Lord. Jesus, the man God was in their midst and they did not even know it. Think about that, the idea of preparing to receive God. And a lot of things come to mind. How would you respond when someone told you to prepare because God is coming? We live in one of the most preparation-oriented societies in all of history. We're careful in our preparation in all kinds of ways. Some of you spent a great deal of time preparing to come to church this morning. Some of you very obviously did not, and we wish you had. Some of you had to go through the painful process of preparing your children for school and school shopping and getting clothes and pencils and the right calculator and and the right shoes and all those things to prepare them for the year that is ahead. Those of you that sent your children off to college, well, that was a whole different level of preparation. This summer, I officiated a few weddings. You want to talk about preparation? Whoa. Think about it. This past week, Hurricane Florence made landfall in the southeastern United States. They knew it was coming for days. They sent airplanes, hurricane hunters, out into the middle of the hurricane to drop all these little weather tubes down there so that they could predict or at least see in very real time the direction the hurricane was turning, all for the sake of preparation. And as a result, millions of people were evacuated. Windows were boarded up. Buildings were made sure. Sandbags were laid down. And the hurricane 
battered away and battered away and battered away. And there's still great loss, but the loss would have been a hundredfold if they hadn't prepared. We prepare for our long-term health by paying attention to our diet. We want to have teeth when we're old, so we prepare by brushing them and supposedly flossing them. We prepare for retirement by saving money right now. We even prepare for our own death by buying life insurance for our spouse and our kids. On Wednesday afternoon, I took a short flight to Baltimore, Maryland for a meeting that I had the next morning. I can't imagine the number of safety checks, mechanical checks, system checks, snack cart checks that they had just for that one hour flight. Friends, we live in a time of immense preparation. And what's striking about that to me is that when someone comes and says, prepare the Lord is coming, that for all of the preparation that we do, for all of the things that we prepare for, there are still some people who are unwilling to prepare. They're willing to stand at the brink of eternity and be completely unprepared. Walking through life that passes so quickly as if a vapor. Preparing for all sorts of trivial or short-lived things, but exercising indifference in preparation for the God of the universe that is at our very doorstep. Are you prepared for that? Are you helping the people around you to be prepared for that? John's message was to prepare. And it reminds us to be prepared as well. And so as he dialogues with these priests, these Jewish leaders, and he's revealing to them the nature of this message, and they're questioning him about who he is and what his purposes really are, what becomes very apparent very quickly is that he is preparing them. And he's preparing them by showing them the greatness of Jesus. And he does this in a couple ways. Look with me at verse 27. Quite obviously he says, that he's greater than I am. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Verse 30. We see a verse that we saw last week in the first part of the chapter. He said, This is the one of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. That is to say that this man, Jesus, has great authority and value because of his eternality. I thought about that a lot this week. Because we often attribute authority to Jesus for all kinds of reasons, and all kinds of right reasons. But Jesus' authority is also grounded in the simple fact of his eternality. We, we say, well, Jesus is perfect, he has authority. We say that he's a deity, so he has authority. We say he's raised from the dead, so he has authority. He's a, he can do miracles, so he has authority. But let's not overlook the simple fact that he ranks before us because he came before us. This holds true in a variety of ways in our culture, in society, and it fails in some others. Of course, not all people who are 
older than you or come before you are great examples to follow. But then there are some who the simple wisdom of years is so evident that you need to heed their every word. One of our elders, Bill Barnes, is 91 years old. Bill Barnes has more wisdom in his pinky finger than most of us have in our entire body. Many of you know Bill, you see him up here praying, you hear from him. And when we're in an elders meeting and when Bill decides to speak, everybody in the room stops what they're doing and they lean in and they listen. But here's the thing. He's only 91 years old. How much more then does the one who comes from eternity past, the one who is called the word that was in the beginning, the one by whom all things were made, the one who is everlasting, how much more would someone with that wisdom of years and perspective demand our every attention? And the implications of that are significant. Think about it, the fact that Jesus' authority is grounded as an eternality. The implications are profound. It means that he understands human history in its purest expression. Not just the victor writes history. (laughs) He understands all the events and actions of history as they really were, but he also understands the motives of them. It means that he knows the human condition and propensity better than anyone else because he's been interacting with it since the very beginning. It means that his power is greater, his wisdom is stronger, his purposes are more than just mere whims, but they're long-standing throughout the course of all of history. The fact that Jesus is eternal means that the entire world can be seen through a lens of interaction with him, and that he is actually the only coherent reality that threads throughout all of human history as he holds all things together. It means that he knows our deepest problems and he is able to offer the deepest solutions. Jesus is great because he is eternal. And John highlights that he is anything but eternal. And so John says, I'm not worthy. He's right before us and he's come before us. And then he compares the baptisms of the two of them. And he says in verse 26, sure, I baptize with water. And then he picks up the thought again all the way down in verse 33. But he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. (laughs) John's baptism was a baptism of water. It was a baptism of preparation of the heart. It was an act of contrition. It was a public sign of repentance. Baptism was a regular um, action of spiritual piety in the first century. And so for John to come and to baptize, this was to help people prepare. It's short-lived, it's immediate, it's preparation. But Jesus' baptism is a baptism in the Holy Spirit. A spiritual baptism in which the constituted a complete immersion of the heart and soul and mind and body with God himself. 
to bless and to guide and to convict and to comfort and to empower and to lead and to transform people from the moment of their faith in him all the way through the rest of their life into eternity. That is the baptism that Jesus brings. And so the tone as John is talking to these people probably sounds something like this. Sure, I baptize with water, but he baptizes with the Spirit. And therefore, he is greater than me. And then comes the moment of revealing him. The climax of the interaction, as it says in verse 29, look at it with me. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not only had the first chapter of John described Jesus' deity, his worth, his power, but now the baptizer points to the place of Jesus in God's plan and his purpose for being there in their very midst. The same author, John, that wrote the gospel. It's not John the Baptist. It's a different John. He also wrote 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, the New Testament epistles. He describes this very event in 1 John 3, 5. He says this, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So it's a similar account. But he adds something. He caught it, right? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. And he writes later, he appeared to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Why is that important? Why does it matter? It matters because to be the Lamb of God, you need to be perfect. You need to be sinless. This is rooted in the Old Testament system of sacrifices. Some of you are very familiar with the Old Testament, others less so. But just know that in the Old Testament, God institutes his law as a way of interacting with his people and a way of highlighting their sin and drawing them back in close to relationship with himself. And as he does, he sets up a system of sacrifices, one of the chief of which sacrifices is the sin offering. And the sin offering in the Old Testament is described in Leviticus chapter 4. If you sin, chapter 4, verse 32, talks about this dynamic. It says, if he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish. That means perfect. And lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it for a sin offering in the place where they kill burnt offerings. And then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as fat from the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on top of the Lord's food offerings. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed and he shall be forgiven. You sin, you come with a sin offering, a perfect lamb. The lamb is sacrificed for atonement that the sinner would be forgiven. 
It's a picture of the spotless lamb being sacrificed. And for many of us, the idea that animal sacrifice is effective for forgiving sins doesn't really seem all that plausible to us. I mean, how does the act of sacrifice in the Old Testament affect the actual forgiveness of sin? Further, if it does, does that mean that we would say that the people of the Old Testament were saved from their sins because they engaged in animal sacrifice? Is that how they were saved? But then we read Hebrews 10, and it helps us understand. Now let's read two verses. Hebrews 10, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the continuity of God's plan throughout all of history and how the person of Jesus fits into this plan and particularly as it relates to the Old Testament sacrifices. And he says this, he says, for since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The law and the sacrifices are a shadow of realities to come, he says. And then in verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Let's put them together. So what you see is that the sacrifice of millions upon millions of perfect lambs over the course of thousands of years because person after person desired the forgiveness that only God could give them. All of these lambs, all of these sacrifices were mere shadows of a greater reality that was to come. All of the lambs pointed to the coming of one lamb. All of the lambs who were sacrificed pointed to the sacrifice of the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Blood sacrifice of animals can't ultimately make you perfect. They can't transform you. They can't ultimately take away your sin. But the lamb of God can. And all of the people who lived in faith that God would forgive would ultimately be forgiven by this lamb. And no other person could provide the forgiveness of sins because no other person was perfect. Only one, the lamb of God, the Lord Jesus. And so right here at the very beginning of Jesus' time on earth, we see his purpose for coming. John announces his purpose right away to the leaders of the day. John's purpose was to reveal Jesus as the Son of God, but Jesus' purpose was to take away the sins of the world. (laughs) You can hear a lot of ideas out there about what Jesus' purpose was and who Jesus really was, and I I don't need to recite all of them for you. You know them. Just pick up your newspaper, turn on the TV, talk, read any vaguely spiritual book, and you'll hear things like Jesus is the great healer, he's a great moral teacher, he's an inspirational figure, he's a miracle worker, he's the picture of loving kindness. The list goes on and on and on. I'm sure he is many, if not all of those things, but John declares boldly, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
He is the sacrificial lamb. Meaning as soon as the God-man was introduced, his impending death was announced. And his sacrifice, which we would come to see would be on a cross, is the way that sins are taken away. And let's not forget that wonderful phrase at the end. This sacrifice is for the world. Meaning that anyone, regardless of their past, or their ethnicity, or their socioeconomic status, anyone has access to him. He didn't just come for white people, or black people, or Asian people, or Latino people, or rich people, or poor people, or smart people, or stupid people. He came for all kinds of people, including you. Friends, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A bazaar was held in the village of northern India, and everyone brought his wares to trade or to sell, and one farmer brought in a whole covey of quail. And he had tied a string to the leg of each quail, and on the other end of the string, he attached a ring and placed the ring over a central stick. And he taught the quail to walk around in a circle. (laughs) And so there they were in the middle of this bazaar, quail walking dofully in their circle around and around and around. Picture mules walking around a mill in which they would grind things. It's that type of picture. Nobody was interested in buying the quail until one Brahmin came along who believed in the idea of respect for all life. His heart was so filled with compassion that he went out to those poor little creatures walking around in their monotonous circles and he said to the vendor, I want to buy them all. And the merchant was elated. And after he'd received the money, he surprised the vendor by telling him, now I want you to set them all free. (laughs) What? The man says, why would you set some nicely trained quails free? You heard me. He said, cut the strings from their feet and set them loose. Set them all free. And with a shrug, the old farmer bent down and he snipped the strings off the quail. And they were free. (laughs) Freed at last. And what happened next? The birds simply continued marching around in the circle like they had always done. And so finally the man had to shoo them away. And off they flew some short distance away. But even as they landed in their new spot, their predictable march resumed. Free, unfettered, released. Yet they kept going around and around in the circles as if they were still tied. But here's the good news. The coming of the Lamb of God who offers salvation to the world, cuts the strings of sin away. And so it's time for the people of God in John's day, and it's time for the people of God today to stop marching and to start flying. And on this side of history, you don't have the foreshadowing of lamb sacrifices because you don't need it. The reality has already come. <laughs> you don't have the voice crying out in the wilderness, prepared to make, make way for the Lord. You don't need it, because he's already come. 
but have you received him? Are you prepared for him? Are you helping others prepare for him? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Father, give us soft hearts to you. Help us be prepared in the most serious and important ways for this lamb. Help us to rejoice in the sacrifice for sin once and all and for all that was given. And continue to grow in us the hope of the future that only this perfect eternal lamb can give. Amen.